Break it down. So I think I need to get in touch with Dr. Hislop and see if we can uh, begin talks with that group to come for our uh, music at St. Lawrence sometime next year. Um, they certainly show us how to go with the flow, though. Uh, today we're continuing our Connect series, as I mentioned earlier, Five Ways to Wreck Your Life. We're looking at, uh, at the different chapters of the story as we go through that together. Uh, we've looked in this series at Solomon, how he gave his heart away. We looked at the bad advice that Rehoboam followed and how the kingdom of Israel was split apart as a result. Uh, last week, we, we looked, about, looked at uh, Elijah and Elisha as they taught us how not to live in fear. And today, we're looking at the fourth way to wreck your life. Go with the flow. Now, we're going to take a look at how the northern kingdom of Israel went with the flow and, uh, as a result, lost everything. Uh, we're going to look at how Hezekiah and Isaiah went against the flow by placing their faith and their trust in God. Um, you'll notice in your, your service folder today, instead of, of the, the typical outline, I actually just have some discussion questions. Um, I'm going to talk about each of those, touch on each of those today in the message, but I'd really strongly encourage you to uh, take that home with you um, and uh, use it in, in some family devotions or some personal uh, devotion time this week, if you would. So uh, chapter 16 of the story starts out pretty rough. Um, in the first page and a half of, of the chapter, we read about how the northern kingdom of Israel is completely and utterly destroyed, wiped out by the Assyrian army in 722 BC. Now, the Assyrians were the most powerful empire in the world at the time. You can see up here, everything that's green, dark green or light green, uh, the Assyrians controlled it at the height of their empire. Um, their capital was, was Nineveh, which you've probably heard of, up in uh, modern-day northern Iraq. Um, and uh, their empire, as you can see, eventually extended down as far as Egypt. They control, controlled most of the known world at the time. So in 722, uh, they came in and uh, completely conquered Israel, destroying their cities and scattering their citizens all over the world. Um, the story kind of summarizes this for us pretty well when it tells us that for Israel, any semblance of a nation, a people with a common cause and heritage, was gone. It's kind of ironic that we're reading about uh, how Israel loses their heritage um, the day that we celebrate Heritage Sunday here. But the scriptures tell us why God allowed this to happen to Israel. God tells us all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them. It gets worse, too. Um, not only do the Assyrians take the Israelites away from their homeland, they actually give their homeland uh, to other peoples. It says, uh, The king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Cathah, Ava, Hamath, Sepharvaim, settled them in the towns of Samaria to replace the Israelites. They took over... Samaria and lived in its towns. And uh, I might need a little help back there with the media if my uh, 
my remote refuses to work for me very well. But uh, yeah, we should have it up there now. Um, God had always intended for his people to, to be different, to be set apart, to stand out. Never to give in to the world around them. Never ever to fall prey to the worthless idols of the nations. But as we read a couple weeks ago, King Jeroboam had decided it would be easier just to go with the flow. Not to make any waves. To do what all the nations around Israel were doing. So we read about how he made two golden calves and led Israel into the worship of other gods. And throughout their history then, Israel never turned away from that idolatry. We're told the Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from them until the Lord removed them from his presence. Ouch. So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile. Israel ignored and forgot God. They were content to go with the flow, satisfied with this deadly status quo that Jeroboam had established for them, and it cost them everything. We learn from the northern kingdom of Israel that if you go with the flow, you lose your home. You lose everything, like like a family whose house has been completely destroyed by the waters of a devastating flood. So things, things don't end up well for the northern kingdom of Israel. And down in Judah, the southern kingdom, they begin to hear about this Assyrian army. They hear what they have done to Israel. That They hear that they will soon be marching south. Now here's a little more background information for you on Assyria. Um, not long before this had all happened, um, a guy by the name, let's see if we can get this up here. There we go. A guy by the name of tiglath Pileser III had come to power in Assyria, um, and he was, was this uh, ruthless king, affectionately known, of course, uh, by his friends as TP3. Um, that's how I learned about him. A little less intimidating. Um, not only was, was tiglath Pileser the winner of the Coolest Name Ever Award, um, he also made Assyria's soldiers into the first professional standing army in the history of the world. Their military might was greater than anything the world had ever seen. And their policy for conquered peoples, at least the ones that they didn't kill, was to disperse them all over the world, separating families and clans so that no nation would ever exist again to rise up against them. And so they, they did this with Israel. They did this all over the place. Uh, Tiglath did this with, with great success, as did uh, Shalmaneser V, Sargon II, and Sennacherib, who we encountered in our Old Testament reading today. Uh, these are the Assyrian kings that came after TP3. So in other words, uh, the Assyrians, every single one of these rulers, were absolutely ruthless. Their armies rushed all over the world like a mighty river, sweeping up everything in its path and laying waste cities and nations along the way. And so for King Hezekiah and Judah... The waters were rising fast. A little bit earlier, Judah had trusted in in alliances with other armies to protect them from the Assyrians. And and because of that, instead of uh, believing that the Lord would protect them, uh, God said this through Isaiah about Judah. God is, is about to bring against Judah, he says, the mighty floodwaters of the river, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow 
all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over it, passing through it, and reaching up to the neck. All too quickly, Hezekiah finds this coming true as the towns of Judah are overrun by Sennacherib's armies and Jerusalem itself is surrounded. The Assyrians send messengers uh, to walk up to the city walls and to yell out to the people living inside Jerusalem, do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. They send messages to Hezekiah mocking God and offering Hezekiah these great gifts if he surrenders. After all, Sennacherib says, surely you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely. And will you be delivered? Did the gods of the nations that were destroyed by my predecessors deliver them? Hezekiah is absolutely distraught. Literally, the most powerful army in the history of the world is surrounding them and demanding their complete capitulation. The river has swept in, the the water is up around the neck, and Hezekiah is on his tippy toes just to keep breathing. There must have been an incredibly strong temptation to, to just go with the flow, to give in to the river, to let it sweep over him and carry him away. Instead, Hezekiah seeks higher ground by going to the Lord in prayer. So as Tom read for us earlier, Hezekiah prays, Give ear, O Lord. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Faced with the overwhelming, devastating power of this mighty river against him, Hezekiah steadfastly refuses to go with the flow, placing his trust not in horses or chariots, but in the Lord God Almighty. And the Lord delivers Judah swiftly and mightily. That very night, God stills the winds and the waves of Assyria's storming invasion as the angel of the Lord kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Think about that for just a minute. Can you imagine? That's 40 times the population of Frankenmuth. God sends Sennacherib home in devastating defeat and delivers his people who trusted in him. I showed you this map uh, just just a few minutes ago of the Assyrian Empire. Did you notice there's a spot right around Jerusalem in Judah there that never found itself under Assyrian control. God, God took this mighty river and he dammed it up, letting it go no further, and he preserved his people. So today I, I want to ask you the question, what's, what's your river? The Assyrians wanted to, to sweep Jerusalem away like a flood, and Satan wants to do the same thing to you. Satan wants to take your home. Satan wants to take your heart. We're given a picture of this in in Revelation when the Apostle John describes in figurative language how the serpent, how Satan, spews forth water like a river to overtake the woman. And in Revelation, this woman represents the church of God. He wants to, to sweep this woman away 
with the torrent. Satan wants to drown the church of God in his temptations to go with the flow. And like the Assyrian generals, he does this by mocking the living God and by offering us great rewards, great pleasures if we surrender. So what's your river? Maybe your river is is a temptation to fit in, to to be like all the people around you. After all, if you do what everyone else is doing, life is going to be so much easier, isn't it? Maybe it's a secret addiction or or habit that you just can't seem to shake. And uh, Satan just whispers in your ear, just just give up. There's no point in in trying anymore. You, You can never change. You're never going to conquer this sin. Maybe your river is, is the strong temptation that we have today to go with the flow by condoning the sins and behaviors that our culture says are okay, even when God's word cl- clearly says that they're not. I can guarantee you, and you know this, that, that going against the flow, refusing to go with the flow, will never be easy. It was far from easy when Hezekiah found himself holed up in Jerusalem with thousands upon thousands of professional soldiers caging him in like a bird, ready to rain down death and destruction upon him and his people. But like Hezekiah, you have someone in your corner who will fight for you, who's mightier than the fiercest army this world can concoct, and more powerful than Satan and all of his legions of demons. God, the Holy One of Israel, watched over Judah when Hezekiah's faith did not waver. And he watches over you as well. And he says to Judah and to you, Fear not, for I am with you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. If we could get that verse up on the screen, I'd appreciate that. Oh, spoiler alert. There we go. Yeah, when, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. God has already kept this promise. As you are passing through the waters of baptism, drowning your sinful nature, and rising up to breathe the, the fresh air of new resurrection life, <laughs> that holy washing changes how we live. It gives us the power to go against the flow of this world's sin and to follow and trust in God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind that Paul says has been transformed and renewed. Toward the end of our chapter for the story this past week, uh, we read about Isaiah's vision in Isaiah chapter 6 where he beholds the glory of God and he cries out, Woe to me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah recognized that we live in a world riddled by sin. He also recognized that sin in himself. What can this say to us today? God did not leave Isaiah in despair, but atoned for his sin by by bringing a flaming coal from the altar and touching it against his lips. God has not left us in our despair, but has atoned for our sin by sending Jesus to die for us. And his blood has redeemed us and purified us. His precious blood has burned away all of our impurities and equips us to go out into the world as Isaiah did, as his sent ones. We are ambassadors of the Almighty God who alone is high and lifted up, holy and holy 
and holy. And we are his people, ourselves, called to be holy, to be set apart, to be perfect, as our Heavenly Father is perfect. God has always intended for his people to be different, to stand out, never to give in to the world around us, never ever to follow the worthless idols of our culture. God calls us and readies us to go against the flow, even as we live in the midst of a people with unclean lips, even as we recognize that our lips too are unclean and unholy apart from the blood of Christ. We live as his sent ones who've been purged of the filth of sin, called to be in, but not of the world. All right. Pretend like you haven't seen this yet. I'm sure that uh, many of you either watched or have heard about uh, the Grammy Awards a couple of weeks ago, um, a show that I didn't see, but I've heard featured a pretty suggestive uh, sexual dancing, a performance that that some commentators at least said kind of bordered on the demonic, perhaps, and, uh, of course, a mass same-sex wedding ceremony. Perhaps you've also heard about Natalie Grant, who is a Christian singer who, who got up and left the awards uh, in the middle of the show. Since then, she's taken a lot of heat for her supposedly judgmental action. Uh, but here's what she had to say. We left the Grammys early. I have many thoughts about the show tonight, most of which are probably better left inside my head. But I'll say this. I've never been more honored to sing about Jesus and for Jesus, and I've never been more sure of the path I've chosen. And she went on to quote Romans 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. Now, I don't know much at all about Natalie Grant myself, but it sounds like she is living out some of Paul's other words in Romans, where he says, let's read this together. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God calls us to non-conformity. He calls us to go against the flow, like Natalie Grant, like Hezekiah and Isaiah as, a, as one excellent Christian writer um, and guy who looks kind of like a mad scientist has said, a dead thing goes with the stream, but only a living thing can go against it. We've been made alive in Christ. Let's go against the flow. After all, it's only natural that followers of Jesus are going to stand out a little bit. He was and is the archetype of what it means to go against the flow. As, as we read this week, as Isaiah wrote in one of his servant songs, he was despised and rejected by men, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was the, the utmost outcast, the ultimate nonconformist. And uh, if we could advance the slide again, I'd appreciate that. Jesus knew what it was like. To, to have a river come sweeping in around him. He had a preview of this when, uh, when John the Baptist dunked him in the Jordan River as he was baptized, identifying with us, uh, entering our predicament as sinners. And then Jesus experienced it in all of its horror on the cross. Do you know how you die when you're crucified? It's not usually from loss of blood or, or, or the shock of the pain. It's usually because you end up drowning in your own internal fluids. 
Yeah, it's, it's disgusting. Jesus experienced the waters rising up to the neck. And this time they didn't stop there. And, and Jesus could only push himself up on the nails to breathe for so long until he breathed his last and committed his spirit to his Father. And as Jesus gave up his spirit on the cross that day, he drowned our sin in the raging river of God's wrath. Here's how Isaiah says it. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. Psalm 90, um, a verse that, that I'll usually read at uh, committal ceremonies for those who have died, says that the Lord sweeps men away in the sleep of death. On Calvary that day, it looked like Jesus had been swept away for good. Dead men don't rise from the dead after all. But Jesus was never one to really follow human conventions. And three days later, he lived again. He lives forever. Jesus has overturned death's curse. Jesus has not only gone against the flow, he has reversed it. And now the river of death gives way to the river of life. So, people of God, I invite you to live like you're alive. Don't be content with the flow in this life, but instead be caught up in the wonder of God's mighty deliverance. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Serve our holy, holy, holy God and trust in him against all odds. Go out as his sent people. Live boldly. And when you pass through the rivers of this life, they will not sweep over you. In Jesus' name, amen.